36 mass shootings already in 2023 in the United States, and we're not even a full month into the year. The lead starts right now. 11 victims now dead with the latest update from the hospital from the massacre in Monterey Park, California. Today, what we're learning about the victims, all in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, and what we're trying to piece together about the 72-year-old gunman's motive. He's been described as quick to anger. Plus, a high-ranking FBI official now in federal custody, arrested after his plane returned from Sri Lanka, and now he's facing money laundering charges and questions about his connections to a sanctioned Russian billionaire. Plus, the bizarre defense in court for the January 6 rioter who kicked up his feet on a desk in Speaker Pelosi's office and posed for a photo, how a stun gun in his pants ended up as key testimony in the case. Welcome to the Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our national lead and a search for answers in Monterey Bay, California. What started out as a festive Lunar New Year celebration in the town outside Los Angeles became a nightmare on Saturday when a 72-year-old Asian man opened fire inside a dance studio in a predominantly Asian-American neighborhood. This afternoon, we learned the death toll has risen to 11, with at least 10 other innocents injured. And the shooter apparently moved on to a second location where he could have potentially taken even more lives if a man named Brandon Say had not fought him off. Something came over me. I I realized I needed to get the weapon away from him. I needed to take this weapon, disarm him, or else everybody would have died. The gunman ran away only to be tracked down by police hours later where he took his own life during a standoff with law enforcement. CNN's Nick Watt starts off our coverage today from Monterey Park, California, where investigators are revealing new details about the gunman's connections to the scene of the massacre. The suspect dead in a panel van, a self-inflicted gunshot after an overnight manhunt. Officials say this 72-year-old man murdered 11, injured nine more, opened fire during Lunar New Year celebrations at an Asian-American dance hall Saturday night. We're so surprised. Here's safe. I'm scared. We're told this man wanted to kill more. Additional units requested multiple victims, gunshot wounds. 10.22 p.m., police respond to a shooting at the Star Ballroom and Dance Studio in Monterey Park, a suburb of L.A. It was chaos. There were wounded people. There were people trying to flee out all the doors. At around 10.40 p.m., the gunman arrived at another dance hall in nearby Alhambra. I turned around and saw that there was an Asian man holding a gun. When he was looking around the room, it seemed like he was looking for targets, people to harm. Brandon Say was getting ready to close up for the night. When I got the courage, I I lunged at him with both my hands, grabbed the weapon, and we had a struggle. We struggled into the lobby, trying to get this gun away from each other. He was hitting me across the face, bashing the back of my head. Eventually, the suspect fled, leaving that weapon behind. An assault pistol that had an extended large-capacity magazine uh, attached to it. The weapon led to an identity. This was not, like so many other mass shootings, a teen attacking kids in a school. This was apparently an old man attacking the middle-aged and older out dancing. But why? We still are not clear on the motive. 
the investigation continues. Apparently the suspect taught dance here informally at one point, met his now ex-wife at this very dance hall. They divorced in 2006. Was it an issue of, of um, being disgruntled or was it an issue of um, domestic violence? We don't know, unfortunately. As I was told that uh, in the past, he was a frequent attendee of this dance hall. His last known address, a trailer home in a senior community further east, was searched. Of course, investigators cannot interview the suspect. He is dead. But they say what was found in this van in Torrance, 30 miles or so from the scene, ties him to this terrible slaughter. And as you mentioned, Jake, 11 dead, 10 died here at the club, one more died in the hospital. We only have two names of the victims so far, Lilan Lee, who was 63, and Mimi Nan, who was 65. Her family say that she was a loving aunt, sister and daughter and friend, and that she loved to dance. And she came here to dance for many years. And this is where she died on Lunar New Year. So senseless. Nick Wan in Monterey Park, California, for us. Thanks. Joining us now to discuss is Thomas Wong. He's a member of the Monterey Park City uh, Council. Uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us. I know this is an incredibly difficult time uh, for your city right now, for your community. How are you and your community holding up? Uh, we're, we're dealing with this the best that we can. We're, we're obviously still in a state of tremendous mourning. Uh, I just got back actually from uh, going through uh, the victim uh, service center uh, where notifications are being made. It's just uh, tremendously sad. And, uh, just as people are checking in with me, uh, people are just trying to make sense of this, and I don't know that that will ever happen. Have all the, the families um, of the victims been notified? Uh, but, uh, my understanding is notifications are currently taking place. I don't know when those will be finalized. You attended the Lunar New Year celebration in Monterey Park on Saturday. You described it to the Wall Street Journal as a time uh, for many different Asian cultures to come together. Can you explain um, what these celebrations mean to the Asian American community? Yeah, the, Lu the Lunar New Year is the, the largest uh, right, holiday, the most popular holiday for many Asian cultures around the world, including here uh, where there's a large Asian diaspora, a large Asian American community. Uh, Monterey Park has hosted this festival uh, for many, many, many years, uh, and this is typically our largest uh, public event of the year. Uh, and this was the first time back uh, in person to have this Lunar New Year Festival uh, since the pandemic broke in 2020. And so everyone was excited. I was excited uh, to get back together in person to celebrate community, uh, to bring families together. Uh, but instead, we're dealing with this tragedy and, and trying to uh, to get through this together. Investigators say they're still trying to figure out the, the shooter's motive uh, for the attack, not like there's any answer that would ever be satisfactory. But, but in Monterey Park, about 65% of residents are of Asian descent. Apparently the gunman was uh, Asian as well. Do you know anything about a motive? We don't know. I, I and everyone else is trying to figure this out and uh, like you said, I don't know that any answer will ever satisfy uh, us. Uh, we want to know more and we want to find out more. And I'm hoping uh, as an investigation continues that we'll get some more of these details uh, so that we can start to figure out uh, what we can do to prevent something like this from happening again. Regardless of motive, uh, I know these last few years have been brutal for the Asian American community with all sorts of racism and acts of violence targeting uh, AAPI individuals. 
Yeah, uh, our community, along with uh, many in the region, uh, have been dealing with the rise in anti-Asian sentiments and Asian hate incidents and crimes. Uh, we've been on edge uh, the last few years as COVID rose uh, and impacted our communities uh, and uh, the rise in Asian hate uh, in our communities as well. And to deal with this on top of that for our local community uh, has been uh, tremendously tragic and, and tragedy piled upon tragedy. Uh, but I've seen our community come together and, and the outpouring of support, uh, both in our neighborhoods here, neighbors checking in on neighbors, family checking in on family, uh, and just providing support in our neighbors uh, in the region, our, our neighboring cities, the county, the state, uh, and from the White House on down, uh, the outpouring of support has been encouraging in this time of, of tragedy. The gunman used a semi-automatic pistol with an extended 30-round magazine, which police say is currently illegal to buy new in California, the 30-round magazine, not the pistol. Do we have any idea, do investigators have any idea how he got the magazine? And was there anything in the shooter's background that, that should have prevented him from getting uh, the pistol? Uh, that I don't know. I'm hoping for answers as well. Uh, I'm, as the investigation continues, I think we're all eager to, to just get more of these details. Uh, but uh, regardless of whether it was legal or illegal, I, I would say uh, it's, it's tragic for our country uh, that guns, and here in California and in Los Angeles, even where, where gun laws are uh, very strict, uh, that access to, to guns is just too easy. Monterey Park City Council Member Thomas Wong, thank you so much for your time and our deepest condolences to your community. We have some bre more breaking news just as we're reporting on this mass shooting in California. Reports of another school, another shooting, this one at a school in Des Moines, Iowa this afternoon. The victims include an employee and two students, according to CNN affiliate KCCI. CNN's Adrian Broaddus joins me now live. Adrian, uh, tell us about this. Is a suspect or suspects in custody? According to investigators in Des Moines, multiple people are in custody, Jake. It's unclear if they or how they are linked to this shooting that left at least one person, according to police in Des Moines, seriously injured and two others in critical condition. I want to take you through the steps of what we know so far. Right now on your screen, you are looking at that strong police presence as police responded to this shooting at what has been described as a charter school charter school. Now, this all happened shortly before 1 p.m. local time in Des Moines, Iowa. That's where Des Moines Fire and other officers responded to this shooting that left at least one person seriously injured and two others in critical condition. We are waiting to hear information from the chief of police in that city any moment. And Jake, when we have those details, we will bring them to you, of course. All right, Adrian Broadus, thank you so much. The State of America, you interrupt one mass shooting story to bring news of another breaking school shooting story. Up next, how House Republicans are calling out the White House for its lack of transparency on the classified documents found at President Biden's home and office, including new documents over the weekend and making a specific ask in a letter today. And the new convictions today on the rare seditious conspiracy charge that underscores the gravity of actions by insurrectionists on January 6th. Plus, the daughter of the second highest House Democrat facing charges, the protest against police that led to her arrest. In our politics lead, the chairman of the House Oversight and Accountability Committee, Republican James Comer of Kentucky, is ramping up his investigation into President Biden's handling or mishandling of classified documents. Comer's calling on the U.S. Secret Service 
to hand over visitor logs from Biden's Wilmington suburban home and demanding that other locations where Biden spent any amount of time be searched. This comes after the latest revelation of more documents found last Friday when the FBI searched Biden's house. CNN's Manu Raju is on Capitol Hill for us. Manu, what do we know about Comer's requests and has the White House responded? Yeah, the James Comer wants all communications, all records related to visitors who may have come to Joe Biden's house from the time of uh, 2017 up until current date and amid the discovery that more classified documents were found at the president's Wilmington residence. He says uh, in a letter today, the Secret Service does generate law enforcement and criminal justice information records for various individuals who may come into contact with Secret Service protected sites. Now, the White House Counsel's Office says there are no visitors' logs actually tracked guests who come in and out. And it's also unclear exactly what information the Secret Service may have. Remember, after Joe Biden left office in 2017, the, he did not have Secret Service protection. It was not actively monitored at the time. He did later get it in March of 2020 when he became the presumptive Democratic nominee. But still, Jake, there is still a lot of scrutiny on Capitol Hill over the president's handling of this issue, not just from Republicans, but Democrats as well. Criticism from people who are normal allies, like Senate Majority Whip Dick Durbin, criticizing the president on this issue. Adam Schiff, who used to be the House Intelligence Committee chairman, saying he has deep concerns about this issue, as well as Senator Joe Manchin, who today told me that the president's claim that there's nothing there just is not past the smell test, and there needs to be more investigation about this going forward. But when Biden says there's nothing there there, I mean, do you buy that? Uh, that that's, not, that's just not a good statement. We don't know. And with that, let's just say if you want to find the facts out, if one of the presidents did something nefarious more so than the other one, these are both wrong. They should have never happened. So there's a lot of guilt for both, okay, or mishandling or misappropriating. And uh, let's just find out if there was any damage done to our country or any damage done that could be, uh, have done or we could prevent. Now, it still remains to be seen how much cooperation the White House gives to House Republicans. They did send a letter saying that they plan to engage in good faith over some of these oversight requests. But how, what that actually means, Jake, remains to be seen. All right, Manu Raju, thank you so much. As the investigations into the Biden's documents controversy intensify, we're learning more about the man who is running the response strategy for President Biden. With me now, CNN White House correspondent Jeremy Diamond. And Jeremy, the man running the strategy is Biden's personal lawyer, uh, longtime Democratic attorney Bob Bauer. What have you learned about him and his strategy? Yeah, Jake, I've learned that Bob Bauer is the one who actually broke the news to the White House on November 2nd that classified documents had been found at the Penn Biden Center offices in Washington. Bauer first notified a White House official, and in subsequent days, he was the one who gave Biden a full rundown of this discovery and the reality that he was now facing the very real prospect of a federal investigation. And since then, Bauer has been the driving force behind this strategy to navigate the investigation, one that has focused on cooperating with investigators to try and zero out Biden's legal risk, but it's also been criticized for making the political and the PR problems that Biden faces worse. That criticism began when we learned that that first White House statement that confirmed the discovery of the first batch of documents actually omitted the fact that documents had also been found weeks earlier at Biden's Wilmington home. Bauer and the small circle of aides working on this issue understood that the omission would generate criticism, but I'm told that the Biden team wanted to avoid public disclosures that they felt could be viewed as undermining DOJ's investigation, and they ultimately decided that they'd rather lose some credibility with the press than with the Department of Justice. And that continues even today. A source familiar with the matter tells me that Bauer and his team don't regret that decision at all, and that's because, above all, this is a team that's willing to accept what they view as short-term pain 
on the PR front as they believe, uh, even though the legal strategy ultimately, uh, as long as that legal strategy ultimately gets them where they want uh, to be. And now the question is, in terms of future cooperation, will it continue? Uh, the I'm told by a source familiar with the matter that, look, they want to continue that cooperation, but there certainly could be disagreements between DOJ and the Biden team about exactly what full cooperation means. Jake. All right, Jeremy Diamond, thanks so much. Coming up, the rare conviction today for the Justice Department and a jury's verdict for the January 6th rioters seen infamously in photos with his feet up on a desk in Nancy Pelosi's office. Stay with us. And we're back with our politics lead and new guilty verdicts for members of the far-right militia group, the Oath Keepers. Four men, Roberto Menuda, Joseph Hackett, David Marshall, and Edward Vallejo were convicted today of seditious conspiracy in a federal court here in Washington, D.C. for plotting to stop the certification of President Joe Biden's 2020 election victory. Marshall uh, was part of the so-called stack formation, the prosecutors said, acted as a, quote, battering ram for pushing through the mob and into the U.S. Capitol. The convictions are another big win for the U.S. Department of Justice, which brought the rare charge of seditious conspiracy against members of the Oath Keepers last year. Back in November, Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes and Kelly Meggs, the group's leader in Florida, were also found guilty of seditious conspiracy, as you might remember. Also in the politics lead today, a guilty verdict for an icon of insurrectionist idiocy who was infamously photographed kicking his feet up on a desk in then-Speaker Nancy Pelosi's office. A jury found Richard Bigo Barnett guilty on all eight charges, including entering and remaining in a restricted area with a deadly or dangerous weapon and obstructing an official proceeding. During trial, Barnett testified he wasn't a protester, but instead had been pushed into the Capitol while looking for a restroom. Court documents showed Barnett had a stun gun in his pants when he was in Speaker Pelosi's office. Barnett said he thought the weapon didn't work because it had been washed in the shower. Barnett was seen in a video on January 6th showing off in an envelope he took from Pelosi's desk. Here's what he said then about that envelope. I paid a quarter for this. I'm not a thief. It had my blood on it. And I left her a note. And it's on her desk right now. And Nancy, when you get back to work, you can read it. I'm going to tell you what it says. You won't have any surprises. That it says, Nancy, Big O was here, you I don't know why they bleeped it out. The word was bitch that he called the Speaker of the House. Theft of government property was one of the eight charges Barnett was found guilty of. Barnett is sentenced to be sentenced May 3rd. Boy, I can't believe the jury didn't buy that explanation. Also facing potential legal trouble, the daughter of House Democratic Whip Catherine Clark is facing charges of assaulting a police officer and defacing a monument. Riley Dowell was arrested Saturday in Boston. Dowell allegedly spray-painted on a bandstand built in 1912 the words No Cop City and ACAB, which is an acronym that apparently stands for All Cops Are Bastards. Joining us now is CNN's Jessica Dean from Capitol Hill. Jessica, what more do we know about Dowell's arrest? Well, we know that the 23-year-old Dow had her first court appearance today, that the judge set bail at $500. And all of this comes after police say they found her spray painting, as you mentioned, those monuments. And then uh, as they went to arrest her, again, police saying uh, that the protesters closed in. And at one point, uh, one police officer uh, was bleeding and was hit in the face. So we do know uh, that she was charged with assaulting a police officer, uh, among other charges. And there will be follow-up court dates, pretrial dates uh, coming in in the coming months, Jake. 
How has Congresswoman Clark, just to remind our viewers, she is the number two House Democrat. How has she responded to this? Well, we got a tweet from her. Uh, she did respond to it. I'll just read it to you. She said, quote, last night my daughter was arrested in Boston, Massachusetts. I love Riley, and this is a very difficult time in the cycle of joy and pain in parenting. This will be evaluated by the legal system, and I am confident in that process. And, Jake, uh, that is all we've heard from the House Minority Whip on this. Yeah, I've seen Republicans criticizing her for not uh, condemning uh, violence against police. Jessica Dean, thanks so mm -hmm. much. Appreciate it. A former high-level FBI official was arrested after getting off an international flight at JFK Airport on Saturday, charged in two separate cases, one for taking money from a former Albanian intelligence employee while in office, and another for violating U.S. sanctions against Russia. The Justice Department says after he left the FBI, Charles McGonigal took payments from a Russian oligarch. CNN's Kara Scannell is following this story. And Kara, uh, working for that oligarch after McGonigal left the FBI is technically not illegal, I don't think. So, so how did he violate sanctions? Well, Jake, the rub here is that that oligarch, Oleg Deripaska, was himself sanctioned by the U.S. for his dealings with Russia. He's a close associate of Russian President Vladimir Putin. So the fact that McGonagall, who was at one point the top official in the New York field office at the FBI, the special agent in charge of the counterintelligence division, he had overseen investigations into Deripaska. But when he left the government, prosecutors alleged that he started working for Deripaska, helping to dig up some dirt on a rival. And that is where they say he violated those sanctions. Because if you do any business with someone who's sanctioned, you're subject to those same um, prohibitions in the U.S. Now, that was the first load of charges that we saw today. Then there was a second indictment that was announced by the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington, D.C. They alleged that while Charles McGonigal, the former uh, chief of intel in New York, while he held that position, he received $225,000 in payments from a former employee of an Albanian intelligence agency. Now, they say that he was working with that Albanian uh, in receiving those payments. They say that he also didn't disclose any travel that he took overseas, and he took multiple trips with him, and that he did not disclose on government forms as required the meetings that he was having over there with any foreign nationals. And according to the prosecutors, he met multiple times with the prime minister of Albania. Uh, now, he appeared in court today in New York to face those New York charges. He, was, he pleaded not guilty, and he was released on a $500,000 bond. Jake. And Kara, how much prison time could he theoretically face? Well, these are serious charges, the most serious of them being the sanctions charges and money laundering charges. And if convicted, he could face a statutory maximum of 20 years in prison. Jake. Kara Scannell, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the Kremlin's threat to any country that dares to roll German-made tanks into Ukraine. Stay with us. Topping our world lead, you're looking right now at new aerial footage from Bakhmut, Ukraine. That's the eastern city at the epicenter of Putin's brutal campaign, where entire blocks are in ruins after months of heavy fighting there as Ukraine continues its desperate plea for heavier weaponry. Today, the Polish prime minister suggested that Poland would send its German-made tanks to Ukraine, even without Berlin's approval. Putin's top propagandist, Dmitry Peskov, is threatening Ukraine will pay if those coveted Leopard 2 tanks roll onto the battlefield. CNN's Fred Plykin joins us now uh, live from Kiev. Fred, how is Ukraine responding to this inter-NATO fight about tanks? 
Well, the Ukrainians say that that inter-NATO fight needs to end as fast as possible because they really need those tanks. It was quite interesting, Jakes, because tonight uh, Dmitry Kuleba, who is the foreign minister of Ukraine, he came out and he said he believes that getting those Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine is in the final stages, that it's something that could happen very quickly or at least that a decision could happen very quickly. Certainly not looking like that um, from what we've been seeing throughout the course of the day. The Germans seem still very much on the fence about it. You just mentioned uh, what the Polish prime minister had to say about they want have a small coalition, but they're also not near any sort of decision on that either. And the Ukrainians are saying with every day that passes, their fleet of tanks that they currently have, Soviet-made ones, is depleting. And they really say they need those new tanks also to keep their troops alive, the survivability in those Western tanks a lot better. Uh, the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, he was asked about this in an interview by Vasily Golod of ARD-TV. Here's what he had to say. This is no time for bargaining. This is the time for survival. We need to survive. And Jake, I've also been in touch with a couple of German officials today, and one of the things that they told me is they really want the Americans on board with this. You've had this discussion about the Germans saying they want the U.S. to also deliver Abrams tanks to Ukraine. Of course, we know that the U.S. says it's not going to do that. What I got from German officials today is they say they want there to be they want there to be close coordination, especially with the United States. Whether they're backing off from that demand to have Abrams tanks here, if they're going to move, is unclear. But certainly, it seems as though they still need something from the U.S. to move forward, Jake. And Fred, we're also hearing about a new southern offensive taking shape. Tell us about that. Yeah, you know, that's something that really started over the weekend where the Russians were saying that they were heavily shelling some areas around the town of Zaporizhia. That's a place that really has for a long time been seen as one of those places that could turn into a hotspot with the Russians really wanting to defend that place because if the Ukrainians break through there, they could be down uh, at, at the Black Sea pretty quickly and cut off Russia's access uh, to Crimea. The Russians said they had taken a couple of villages. The Ukrainians acknowledged that there had been heavy shelling going on, but said that they were actually holding the line there. It's unclear whether or not the Russians are going to make any additional moves, but that certainly is one of those places, Jake, where in the future, possibly the not too distant distant future could become a real hot zone of this war. We're right now, we're mostly still looking at the East, Jake. All right, Fred Plykin and Keith, thank you so much. Let's bring in Mark Esper, former Secretary of Defense under President Trump. Um, Mark, why won't the Germans do this? I, I don't understand. Like, anytime you talk to an administration official, they try to downplay the tensions going on in NATO, but it's really spilling over. It's really quite obvious you have the Polish Prime Minister criticizing uh, uh, Chancellor Schultz. Why won't they even just allow other countries to give the Leopard 2s. Yeah, no one knows for sure, Jake. In my mind, it's a lack of leadership. Uh, the Germans seem very reluctant still to depart from a decades-old policy of Ostpolitik where they try to make nice with the Russians. And it's the Ukrainians are paying the price for it. And, and one of the arguments that the, that the Germans are making is they don't want to go into this alone. They want the Americans to send some Abrams tanks, which the Ukrainians are not really asking for because... The fuel is different. They're they're bigger. They're older. Um, what's the downside of the U.S. sending a few of these tanks just to satisfy the Germans? Could that actually? I mean, the, the Russians don't think of Germany as a threat, but they certainly think of the U.S. as one. Is, does that play into it? Well, first of all, I think the Biden administration is right that the Leopards are a better tank than the Abrams for all the logistical and other reasons. And and I've been critical, of course, of the Biden administration in the past. But on this one, I think if, it, if the key is to send a dozen Abrams to unlock the Germans, get it done. Send over a dozen Abrams tanks and allow then Germany and Poland and Finland and others who have leopards as well to, to provide them to the Ukrainians. Because, look, time is not on our side here. We talk about a spring offensive either by the Russians happening sometime in March, about five weeks away, 
or preferably uh, the Ukrainians launching their own offensive beforehand. And uh, it's going to take time to deliver the tanks, to train the Ukrainians up, to set up the supply lines for logistics and maintenance. Let's get it moving. And, and I'm hopeful. I suspect this will get unlocked here in the next couple of days or so. Do you think how do you think it's going to get unlocked? I, I, I think they're all moving toward a solution whereby uh, the, the Poles and Germans at the highest level will get it done. We had the German foreign minister today say, well, if the Poles want to send it, if the Poles want to send it, go ahead. We won't mind. Oh, OK. Right. And so now you it's up. Now the Poles are saying, well, we want to hear from the chancellor. So it looks like they're inching their way toward this. But look, again, if it takes a dozen Abrams tanks to position somewhere in western uh, Ukraine to unlock this. Let's get on with it. Time is not on Ukrainian side. If you were Secretary of Defense right now, what would you be arguing that the U.S. should be doing that the U.S. is not currently doing? Well, I'd send some tanks, right. unlock the Germans. I still think they need ATACMs, long-range uh, precision missiles. Why? Not to strike deep into Russia, but to strike deep in Crimea, to knock out those um, Shahid drone launch points, and to knock out other uh, logistics lines of communication and all those things they need. And... Third, the Germans, I'm sorry, the Ukrainians need more air defense to protect the cities and then to protect themselves going forward uh, as they move in an in a offensive. Would you only give the attackums with the, under the provision that they cannot be used to fire into Russia? They can only be used to fire at Russian forces in Crimea? Would that be like that? That would be the rule? If that's what it takes to get them uh, to get attackums to uh, to Ukraine. Yes, uh, there is a concern that if you start striking deep into Russia, uh, that you may turn the, popula- the Russian population uh, uh, alongside Vladimir Putin, and, and you don't want to unnecessarily escalate. So in my mind, uh, provide them attackums, allow them to reach deep into eastern Ukraine and deep into southern Ukraine to include Crimea, again, to knock out those launch points and logistics centers. Take a listen uh, to the new chairman of the House of Foreign Affairs Committee, Michael McCall, Republican of Texas, uh, talking to my college, colleague Dana Bash about the importance of educating members of Congress. Um, there are a lot of, as you know, Republicans in the kind of MAGA isolationist wind who don't, who don't want to be involved in this. The importance of educating them as to why aid to Ukraine is so important. Take a listen. If Ukraine falls, Chairman Xi and China is going to invade Taiwan. And it's, it's Russia, China, Iran who's putting drones in Crimea and North Korea that's putting uh, artillery into uh, Russia. Do you agree? I do. I've said from day one that Beijing is watching very, very closely about how the United States and its allies will respond. And thankfully, we responded uh, in a unified way, comprehensively, financial sanctions, economic sanctions, diplomatic sanction of, uh, sanctions, and of course, military support to push back on the Russians. So everybody is watching. I think this is a, a smart investment for the United States to continue to provide arms, uh, ammunition and assistance to the Ukrainians, because a Ukrainian defeat would be would go a long way toward knocking back one of our clear near-peer or previously near-peer competitors. One of the the knocks on the U.S. government's support for this war uh, has to do with how how good for profits this is for the military-industrial complex. You used to work for Raytheon, uh, which is a leading defense contractor, which won a massive $1.2 billion contract with the Pentagon. You don't work for them anymore, I know. But um, how do you counter that argument that, you know, I'm not saying that I believe this, but you only want this because the military industrial complex is getting fat. <laughs> I, I want this because we are now in a uh, in a struggle between autocracy and democracy. This will be the struggle of the 21st century. And it's important that the Western democracies band together and beat back the Russian autocrat called Vladimir Putin. Because like we said earlier, Xi Jinping sitting in Beijing watching and he's watching how we will react and how we will respond. 
And every day that we continue to remain unified and support the Ukrainians is a day that he backs off from any intentions he might have against Taiwan. Do you talk to any of the House Republican leadership? They're in charge now, and I think there are a lot of Republicans who think the way you do about international affairs who are worried about the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the other, um, I don't want to, whatever they are, isolationists, right. whatever, people that are reluctant to get involved in Ukraine, worry about their voices getting louder and more powerful. I've talked to senior members on both sides of the aisle, and on the Republican side, I think most most Republicans understand this is important to do, to do this, to support the Ukrainians, that it's in our long-term national security interests to do so. So I'm confident at the end of the day uh, that will prevail. I want to ask you, uh, there's a new book from your friend and colleague Mike Pompeo uh, called Never Give an Inch. And there's an excerpt that mentions you. Not that many, but this is one of the few. Uh, he writes, on July 19th, 2020, as I was on a flight back to D.C., White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows called me. Mike, Esper is not going to make it, he said. He added that the president told him that he wanted me to dual hat and take on leading the Department of Defense as an additional duty. I told Meadows that I thought that was a nutty idea. Now, you, you survived until a few months later. Um, what did you, did you had you heard about that before, that he wanted Pompeo to run the State Department and the Pentagon? Yeah, no, no, I had not heard about that. But of course, I knew, you know, when I pushed back on the president's desire to use active duty forces in the pl- protests in D.C. in early June, and then I came out and publicly spoke out against it. I knew I was on thin ice from that point forward. So as I write in my memoir, uh, there were a number of things I had to do to advance the ball, to protect the nation, the national security, and what we were trying to do. And I continued to do those as I pushed back on what I thought were not smart ideas. And my game plan was get to the election. And fortunately, I was able to do so. And there wasn't, I guess, a need to dual hat Mike Pompeo. <laughs> you got to the election. Uh, thanks so much for being here. Appreciate Thank you, it. Um, Mark Esper, former Secretary of Defense. He was arrested by police. He died just days later. Now, family attorneys say the victim was beaten like a human pinata. The details of this one are disturbing. Stay with us. In our national lead, the family of Tyree Nichols saw today for the first time the police footage of their son's arrest in Memphis, Tennessee, giving the family an indication of what happened earlier this month to the 29-year-old shortly before he had to be taken to a hospital where he died a few days later. This video has not yet been made public. Police say that Nichols tried running away after being pulled over for reckless driving on January 7th. He was ultimately captured by police and then hospitalized after complaining of having a shortness of breath. All five officers involved were fired more than a week after Nichols' death. CNN's Nick Valencia is following this story. Nick, what, what was the family's reaction to the video, and when can the public expect to see it? Well, the family attorney said that this video was reminiscent of the 1991 beating of Rodney King. They did not hold back in their characterization. The family, very emotional during this press conference, saying it was not only violent, but it was savage. And during these three minutes that Tyree Nichols was repeatedly beaten by police, he reportedly asked, what did I do? He was defenseless the entire time. He was a human pinata for those police officers. It was an unadulterated, unabashed, nonstop beating of this young boy for three minutes. The family and their attorneys said that they were careful to not offer too many details of what they saw, but did say that were multiple videos that they saw earlier today. Again, this is being the first time since that January 7th incident. They're careful because there is an active investigation going on, not just by the Shelby County District Attorney, but also the Tennessee Bureau investigation, as well as the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division. Jake. 
Do we know where the investigation into the officers' actions stands and whether those officers could potentially face criminal charges? We do, and that investigation appears to be moving forward. I had a conversation earlier this morning with the Shelby County District Attorney's Office, and they said they are considering charges against the five officers involved in the arrest, those officers that you're looking at there now. They've been identified as Tadarius Bean, Demetrius Haley, Emmett Martin III, Desmond Mills Jr., and Justin Smith. The spokeswoman for the Shelby County uh, District Attorney's Office told me that if any charges are filed, they could come later this week. They also told me, Jake, that they do plan, it's not a matter of if, but when they release this video, they say when that happens, that could be later this week or sometimes ne- or sometime uh, next week. Jake. All right, Nick Valencia, thanks so much. Coming up, you former bet. President Donald Trump pictured with Philly's own former mob boss, Skinny Joey Merlino. What Team Trump is saying about the image obtained by the Philadelphia Inquirer, that's coming up. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, what drove a 72-year-old man to shoot and kill 11 people celebrating the Lunar New Year at a California dance studio? The search for a motive. Then, former President Donald Trump posed at one of his golf courses with convicted Philly mob boss Skinny Joey Merlino, who operated with the likes of Tommy Horsehead and Pete the Crumb. And leading this hour, the chairman of the House Oversight Committee now wants the Secret Service visitor logs for President Biden's private home in Wilmington, Delaware, after claiming the White House is refusing to cooperate. But Secret Service says the agency does not keep visitor logs for Biden's Wilmington home. This comes after it was revealed over the weekend that the FBI found more classified material at the home on Friday. CNN's Phil Mattingly is live for us at the White House. And Phil, let's walk through this because these new documents were discovered on Friday. The White House didn't announce their discovery until Saturday night. And it's not clear what exactly was discovered. The the White House statement said they found, quote, six items consisting of documents with classification markings and surrounding materials, unquote. But that language seems almost purposely designed to confuse. Is that six documents, six folders of documents, six boxes of documents? Do we have any idea? You know, Jake, we just got off a phone call with the spokesman for the White House Counsel's Office briefing reporters on the latest, and we still don't have a good sense of what exactly, in terms of specifics related to those six items, uh, the Justice Department actually picked up. And I think that, to some degree, underscores the White House position, mainly focusing on the idea that this search was something that was proactive on the president's legal team side. It was voluntary on the president's legal team side. But in terms of what the Justice Department actually discovered, they will not go beyond what they said in that Saturday statement. The rationale given by Ian Sams, the spokesman, was that this is underlying information that's tied to the investigation and is better for the Justice Department to answer those questions while that investigation is ongoing. And it once again underscores attention for White House officials as they attempt to try and address some of these issues publicly, address what is very much an ongoing investigation and over the course of the last two weeks has seen multiple disclosures, seemingly every two or three days of new classified documents discovered either at the president's think tank in Washington or at his Wilmington home while also not trying to run afoul of an investigation that is now very much underway. Ian Sams, the spokesman, also did not say whether or not there was an expectation that the president's legal team would be offering other searches, perhaps of his Rehoboth property or anywhere else at this point in time. But we are uh, of the understanding from people familiar with the matter that that is something Justice Department officials are considering. It's worth noting that as this is going back and forth, White House says that they will uh, maintain complete cooperation throughout this process going forward. It's also worth noting that the special counsel, Robert Hur, isn't technically up and running yet. So this is something that still has a number of steps to go. It's still very much a live process, Jake. 
And we also learned yesterday, uh, you and Caitlin Collins reported uh, that the Biden uh, White House chief of staff, Ron Klain, is going to be stepping down in a few weeks after the State of the Union address, and he's going to be replaced by Jeff Zients. Tell us about Zients. You know, he's somebody who's very well known in Washington, but also very well known in the building behind me. He was President Biden's COVID response coordinator when he first came into office when the pandemic uh, was still raging throughout the country. He was the co-chair of his transition team as well. Before that, served in a number of high-ranking positions inside the Obama administration. And look, Ron Klain is obviously a very powerful chief of staff, really has his hands on just about everything that comes across the president's desk, across the administration. And his departure is significant. Somebody who's known and worked with the president uh, for decades and has been so integral to the operations in the building over the first two years. But it was also something that was largely telegraphed. Klain telling people internally for several months he expected to leave at the start of this year. Now Zions will take over that portfolio. And while he might not be the political operator that Klain is, when you talk to White House officials, they make clear it's his operations ability and what he's known for in terms of keeping the trains running on time that they view as so critical in this moment, a moment where President Biden will be dealing with House Republicans now in the majority, but also dealing with the implementation of all of those cornerstone legislative achievements of his first two years, in part, as this investigation from the special counsel is ongoing, this is deliberate, trying to keep the White House separate from that investigation, keep things running on time, very much in line in the West Wing, as that investigation and the president's legal team keep handling what is still a very uncertain timeline going forward, Jake. All right, Phil Mattingly, thanks so much. Here to discuss CNN anchor and chief correspondent uh, Caitlin Collins and CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig. And Caitlin, uh, this afternoon, the attorney general, Merrick Garland, addressed uh, the Biden uh, document investigation and the Trump document investigation. Take a listen. We, the department has a set of norms and practices that have been part of our DNA since Ed Levy was the attorney general, uh, the first post-Watergate attorney general. These are essential for us to continue. They uh, ensure that we adhere to the rule of law. These mean, among other things, that we do not have different rules for Democrats or Republicans. Do you think that that is how the Trump and Biden teams see this, that there are not separate rules for Democrats and Republicans, everyone's being treated the same way? Well, the White House thinks that they should not be treated the same way because they think they've handled it differently in the sense that they're cooperating, as Phil was talking about there. Trump thinks he's being treated unfairly because there wasn't, you know, a search warrant executed on Biden's property. But we did see the FBI go and search his property uh, on Saturday, on Friday for that 13 hour search. Remarkable. It didn't happen with a search warrant. It was in coordination with Biden's attorneys. But still, there were FBI agents searching the president's home. And what was so fascinating there to me about Attorney General Garland and what he said was invoking Ed Levy, who was this first Attorney General after Watergate, he was credited with restoring order to the Justice Department, bringing it back to normal after what happened during Watergate. People said they didn't really know what his political affiliations were. And for Garland to be viewing his job through that lens of what he's doing now, dealing with these two massive investigations and uh, the FBI search, you know, underscores the seriousness of the investigation into Biden. Yeah. And Ellie, the FBI conducted this search at President Biden's home this weekend, I guess on Friday, uh, not just his attorneys, we were asking last week, how come his attorneys are doing it? They don't have uh, the authority to look at these classified documents. What do you think that signals about the investigation? Well, Jake, it tells me that DOJ and the FBI do not fully 100 percent trust Biden's team. And here's why. From a prosecutor's perspective, in a situation like this, you really have three options. One is you can say, we fully trust you. Go ahead. You do the search. You give us what you got. You tell us what we need and we'll trust you. That's where we started out back in November. Option two is we don't necessarily fully trust you. FBI needs to be involved. We'd like your consent to do a search. And that's what happened now. So we're up a level. And then the highest level of distrust 
is to go do a search warrant, which of course has not happened in the Biden case, did happen in the Trump Mar-a-Lago case. So this tells me that DOJ believes its initial belief and faith in the Biden team was at least somewhat misplaced. Interesting. Caitlin, uh, take a listen to uh, what Senate Majority Whip Dick Durbin, that's the number two Senate Democrat, said about the FBI finding even more classified material at President Biden's home. This is uh, from the search on Friday. When that information is found, it diminishes uh, the stature of any person who is in possession of it because it's not supposed to happen. Uh, whether it was a, the fault of a staffer or an attorney, it makes no difference. You know, one of the things that's interesting is you hear, whether it's from Speaker Paul Ryan on this show or, or Speaker Pelosi talking to Chris Wallace or, or, or Dick Durbin or others, is like these are people who have dealt with these documents and have not taken them home, Right. Uh, so how bad do you think this is for President Biden? Dick Durbin's like, I never not only took it out of the building, I never took it out of my office, talking about the different natures of that. So these are people who have been in this situation dealing with classified information, and they're saying, you know, we never dealt with it like this. And so I think that that's criticism that they the White House has opened themselves up to. And it's become this situation where it's been handled, you know, Biden coming out last week saying there's no there there. But there are real questions about this. Clearly, the Justice Department has real questions about what documents he took. And we don't know what is in these documents. You know, the White House has said they don't even know what it looks like. And it definitely is different in terms of the the cooperation and what they're saying about it. But it still underscores the fact that he did take classified information. It was unknowingly to him, he says, sitting in his garage and in these other locations. I think it raises real concerns. The other thing that I'm hearing, you know, I was talking to John Bolton, Trump's national security advisor earlier today. He is no fan of the former president anymore. He goes out and openly criticizes him. He thinks this is going to help absolve Trump from being prosecuted in this situation because of what the Justice Department is now facing, this question of how they handle two presidents who took classified information when they left office. And so I think that's why it's put Democrats in such a position saying, you know, the White House was not careful with this, the Biden White House. And, and Ellie, you know, one of the one of the suggestions you hear from House Republicans who are looking into all of this, and obviously there's a political dimension to what they're saying, but but there are people in Biden's family, Hunter and his brother Jimmy and his other brother, I think Frank, is that his name? Uh, you know, these are people who have lots of business deals and businesses with other countries and businesses with the federal government. And the question of were they ever in that garage? Were they ever in that room? Were they ever, I mean, those aren't ridiculous questions. No, those are very fair questions. And in fact, Jake, I think this highlights one of the key questions, which is what is in those documents? What's the content of those documents? Now, we here in the media and the public may not find that out, but if I'm at DOJ, I need to know that because on the one hand, perhaps they're just sort of random arbitrary documents that relate to esoteric issues. On the other hand, we don't know this, but what if those documents do relate to some of those issues that you just raised, some of the family members, some of the business interests, that will shed a very different light on the intentionality here. So if I'm prosecuting this case, that's exactly where I'm looking. And, and, and Caitlin, this Justice Department investigation is coming at the time when obviously Republicans have taken control of the House of Representatives. The new chairman of the House Oversight and Accountability Committee, Congressman James Comer of Kentucky, he says he doesn't think that the FBI or Justice Department are taking this investigation seriously. And he's calling for any premises where Biden has spent time to be searched. Um, so however bad it is right now for Biden, it's going to probably get worse. Well, and that's what makes this so challenging for the White House is that this is coming at a time that now they are dealing with Republicans who have legitimate authority on, on Capitol Hill to make these requests of the White House. And you saw that first letter that went to Comer earlier today saying, 
they would comply with legitimate oversight requests. I've talked to some Republicans who do have concerns about what this ultimately looks like and being too loud about the document situation and comparing it to Trump's when ultimately they they fear it may not materialize into anything. And so they have cautioned or told them to use caution on this and to make sure it does look like a legitimate investigation. Because the other thing Dick Durbin said earlier is, you know, when he was asked, is it going to be a reasonable investigation? He referenced Benghazi, essentially implying no, that it won't. But the White House does understand that they are going to have to respond to these requests from Republicans. Not everything, but they are going to have to be dealing with what James Comer is going out and saying every day about real questions he has about this. Yeah. Chairman Comer saying things about the investigation. That's one thing. Oversight Committee member Marjorie Taylor Greene saying things about it, that's that's another. Right, and so how do they coordinate that with someone like him wanting to run this investigation and make sure it has this veneer of legitimacy, but also dealing with members like that? Caitlin Collins, Ellie Honig, thanks so much. Coming up, an update on the school shooting in Des Moines, Iowa, that has now turned deadly. Then why George Santos' lies could come back and bite one of the most powerful Republicans in the House. Stay with us. An update now on the breaking news we brought you last hour. Des Moines, Iowa police say that two students are dead and a school employee is in serious condition after a shooting at a charter school in Des Moines this afternoon. CNN's Adrian Broadus joins us now live. Adrian, police just gave an update on the shooting. What new details did they reveal? Well, Jake, not the news folks want to hear. Schools are supposed to be a safe space, but today... We're talking about the scene of another shooting. And as you mentioned, two students are deceased and that adult employee was listed in serious condition and is undergoing surgery at this hour. Investigators say this shooting was not random. Listen in. It was not random. There's there's nothing random about this. It was certainly a targeted incident. Um, But as far as, again, motive, that's something that we are going to try and figure out. And the sergeant who spoke with us described this school as a charter school. Meanwhile, we did hear from the school district, Des Moines Public Schools, saying starts right here is a community partner of Des Moines Public Schools providing two services. One, it helps to reengage students who have uh, need some help with recovery. And it also helps students who are no longer in a school building due to behavioral issues. Investigators say they have three people in custody. Thanks to a witness, police were able to gather a description of the suspect vehicle, and an officer spotted that vehicle in traffic and was able to take those three people into custody. Jake. All right, Adrian brought us with the latest on a school shooting in Des Moines, Iowa. Thank you. Turning now to a different American horrific shooting incident. Investigators in Monterey Park, California, are trying to figure out Why a 72-year-old Asian man went on a mass shooting spree Saturday night, killing 11 people. The majority Asian community was in the middle of a full weekend of celebrations for the Lunar New New Year. CNN's Natasha Chen is in Monterey Park for us now, where we're starting to learn about the victims of this horrific attack. On the eve of the Lunar New Year, in the predominantly Asian-American community of Monterey Park, California, there was dancing and joyful celebration, then gunfire. I got uh, three immediates in here, and I got approximately 10 deceased. Police say a 72-year-old man, armed with a semi-automatic pistol, opened fire on people inside the Star Ballroom dance studio, not long after local streets were filled with people celebrating the new year. It's scary. It's scary to think that, you know, thousands of people were here at the festival. 
At least 11 people were killed in the shooting at the dance studio, several more seriously injured. Additional units requested multiple victims, gunshot wounds. We're at 17 right now. Uh, I'm still trying to get a hold of the number of critical. Got one more critical, one more immediate inside the business. After the massacre, the gunman left Monterey Park and police say went to a second dance studio in the nearby community of Alhambra. There he encountered Brandon Say at the ticket booth who did an interview with ABC. Say said he lunged at the gunman and they struggled for the gun. I, I, I was trying to use my elbows to separate the gun away from him, creating some distance. Finally, at one point, I was able to pull the gun away from him shove him aside, create some distance. The gun's still in his hand. Say said he called police. He's now being hailed as a hero for potentially preventing further violence. About 12 hours after the shootings, law enforcement located the gunman's vehicle, and 72-year-old Hu Kan Trung was found dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Police say they still don't have a motive for the attacks, but evidence inside the van tied Trung to the shootings. Several people who knew Trung tell CNN he had taught informal dance lessons at the studio where he unloaded a barrage of gunfire, and his ex-wife says that's where they met. Mimi Nung and Lilan Lee are among the dead, most in their 60s and 70s. The community of Monterey Park and the tight-knit dance community in the area are now coming to terms with the devastating violence during what was supposed to be a celebration of hope and peace. There's no words to really describe how I'm feeling. I'm just very sad. There's, there's too much hate. We are expecting a press conference shortly, so hopefully there will be more updates on the, this investigation. But we are learning from police in Hemet, California, about uh, 80 miles southeast of where we are, that Trong had actually come into their police department lobby on January 7th and January 9th, alleging uh, past fraud, theft, uh, and poisoning involving his family in the Los Angeles area. He told police that he would come back with documentation, but never returned there. Jake. All right, Natasha Chen in Monterey Park, California, with the update. Thank you. Coming up, Democratic Senator Jackie Rosen and Republican Senator James Lankford join me next, fresh off their trip to visit a key U.S. ally. Stay with us. In politics now, the many problems surrounding Congressman George Santos, Republican of New York, and the various lies he told about his background are putting key members of the House Republican leadership in a new spotlight. CNN's chief investigative correspondent and anchor, Pamela Brown, joins us now live. And Pamela, attention is now turning to the role of a powerful Republican in helping this liar and con man get elected. That's right, Jake. One of George Santos's biggest cheerleaders throughout his campaign was Elise Stefanik, the number four Republican in the House of Representatives and the most influential Republican in her home state of New York. A senior Republican strategist involved in campaigns told me, quote, Stefanik's team was laser focused on electing Santos to Congress more than just about any other race in the country. Now, Stefanik insists she didn't know about Santos's pattern of deception until The New York Times revealed he made up stories in the past, including lies about his school, jobs and family history, pretty much everything, Jake. Throughout Santos's campaign, Stefanik was a significant supporter. We talked to several people who donated to his campaign, including one man who gave tens of thousands of dollars who said Stefanik's support influenced them to donate. 
Stefanik endorsed Santos early in his campaign, more than a year before the election, and her tweet included a link to a fundraising page that would benefit both her and Santos. She later tweeted that a lunch event raised over $100,000 to help George flip New York three, his district. One donor who was at that lunch told CNN the only reason that they donated was because of Stefanik. And Santos understood the power of her endorsement as well. He used this photo of the two of them as the banner image for his Twitter page up until last week. Republican consultants said they heard first of Santos's issues back in the summer of 2022. Of course, you know, there's a, a big reason here, Jake, why they weren't more outspoken. And that is because they needed that win, especially for House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who admitted recently he always had concerns about Santos's resume. Yet he held a fundraising breakfast for him October 3rd, just before the election. Jake. So, Pam, as a as a powerful New York Republican, Congresswoman Stefanik endorses a lot of candidates. Mm-hmm. What makes this any different? than that. So in this case, we've learned Stefanik didn't just endorse and help fundraise for Santos, according to multiple sources that spoke to me and my colleague Greg Krieg. One of her top aides was actually advising Santos's campaign, though there is no record it was in any official capacity. We're told he even helped Santos hire people. When we asked Stefanik for comment, her spokesperson said no one from her team, her staff, they use that word, worked for or advised Santos, saying Congresswoman Stefanik supported all GOP nominees and targeted New York seats, just like every other New York Republican elected official and the entire House Republican leadership team. Jake. Right. That word staff is mm-hmm. key. Uh, there have been calls for Santos to resign, but it looks as though the Republican leadership in the House, McCarthy, Stefanik, et cetera, they're not asking for that at all. No, they're not. Uh, neither Stefanik nor McCarthy nor other prominent Republican backers of his in Congress have publicly asked Santos to resign. And he's even been given committee assignments. He's co-signed bills with Stefanik. A donor we talked to said Santos is an embarrassment to the party and should resign. But Republican consultants tell me there's very little chance of that happening. The Republican margin in the House, as I pointed out earlier, is so thin, Jake, they just don't want to risk losing Santos's uh, precious seat. I will note Dan Goldman, a Democratic Republican from New York who just won his election, uh, he is using our story to to call for uh, at least Stefanik to now be uh, answer questions and be involved in investigations involving George Santos, including an ethics investigation he says he initiated with Richie Torres. Jake? All right, Pamela Brown, thanks so much. Let's turn to our world lead now. Despite any private, internal Biden administration concerns that the new Israeli government is too far right and not sufficiently committed to democracy, the United States and Israel today launched their largest ever joint military exercise involving a U.S. aircraft carrier strike group and nearly 150 planes from both the United States and Israel. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu continues to move forward with plans to undermine Israel's independent judiciary, uh, giving the parliament, the Knesset, the power to overturn court rulings, despite massive protests against the move. Let's discuss this with Democratic Senator Jackie Rosen of Nevada, along with Republican Senator James Lankford of Oklahoma. They just returned from Israel, where they led a bipartisan Senate delegation. Uh, Welcome to both of you. Uh, Senator Rosen, You reportedly told the Israeli government that you did not want to meet with any members of the controversial far-right parties within this ruling coalition during this visit. Why? Well, thank you for having us uh, this evening. I can tell you that Senator Langford and I just returned from a bipartisan congressional delegation focused on the Abraham Accords. We went to Morocco, Bahrain, UAE, and Israel 
was very important to us as we met with high-leading, high-ranking officials in every country to talk about the concerns and the opportunities for the Abraham Accords. I can tell you that we spoke with all the high-level officials, Prime Minister Netanyahu and others in the Israeli government, as we were moving forward on the mission of this congressional delegation. Uh, We were quite firm in talking to Prime Minister Netanyahu about not doing anything that would change the status quo and that would impede the process of a negotiated two-state solution. Uh, Senator Lankford, analysts have called this the most right-wing government in Israel's history and questioned uh, the government's commitment to democracy given its attempts to undermine the the Supreme Court uh, in Israel. One of the ministers, Ben Gavir, has previously been convicted of supporting terrorism and inciting anti-Arab racism. I'm sure you must have some concerns about these individuals. Yeah, they, these are all members of the that have been elected uh, as the Israeli people have spoken on this. So uh, as Americans, we have been very strong to stand with Israel. We'll continue to be able to stand with Israel. Uh, that's an unbreakable bond that we have with Israel, and we've done that regardless of party. Uh, obviously, they had a different uh, prime minister and a different government uh, 18 months ago, had a, Benjamin Netanyahu then uh, before that. So uh, the United States still continues to be able to stand with Israel regardless on this. This is a friend that we have in the region. And as we went uh, to that area, we were speaking to them about the Abraham Accords, which is the most significant Middle East policy that we've had in a shift and an opportunity for peace in that region that we've seen in a generation. So the whole reason we went as a bipartisan group and visited all the countries from the Abraham Accords was to reinforce, to work on how we can actually grow that partnership, how we can add new countries to that partnership, and what we can do for the existing partnerships, regardless of which government is, is there, to be able to continue to be able to grow that friendship among the region. It's incredibly important for American national security and for Middle East peace in the region. Yeah, without question, the Abraham Accords are one of the, the most significant achievements of the Trump administration. Uh, Senator Rosen, um, the accords are, for people who don't know, normalization agreements between Israel and various Arab states. Um, Why haven't we seen more uh, on these agreements, more building on this uh, from the Biden administration? Well, I can tell you that the accords are are pretty new, just signed in the last administration. Of course, we're still coming out of COVID, so some uh, some travel's been a little bit difficult between the countries. But this is really uh, historical, the foundation and the framework that it lays. And so when we went to visit the four Abraham Accords countries, we talked about the challenges, the threats from Iran, the opportunities, how they can partner on water security, on food security, on energy, technology, and of course, medical partnerships. And what everyone wanted to do was be sure that they talked about peaceful coexistence in the region and prosperity. That's what they're hoping for, and that's what we were there to talk about. We have a lot to bring back, not only to the Senate, but I believe to speak with the administration about as well. Senator uh, Lankford, uh, you talked about Israel uh, being a friend of the United States, one of the closest friends in the country. Isn't part of a friendship when you see your friend hanging out with individuals with shady ethical or racist beliefs when you see your friend acting in such a way so as to undermine democracy, isn't it the responsibility of the friend? And maybe you do it privately, but isn't it expressing concern and trying to steer the friend back in the right direction? Sure it is. That's the nature of uh, being friends and having frank conversation. There are frank conversations that occur privately. There's also actions that we continue to be able to work on publicly. I I would tell you, everything that we were focused in on is how do we continue to advance the Abraham Accords? How do we continue to uh, strengthen this? 
What we've seen just in the last couple of months is what they call the NEGA Forum meetings. These are practical meetings of all those nations meeting together, talking about, as Senator Rosen had mentioned, how they deal with water, energy, all the key things there in that region. If you're going to continue to be able to work towards a peaceful future, you've got to be able to sit down at the same table together. Uh, as I like to tell people all the time, you can't get all the issues on the table until you get all your feet under that same table. They're doing that now in that region through the NEGA Forum and through other ways as well, and they're working towards advancing that. And they have those frank conversations with us and with all the governments. Quite frankly, with all of those nations, we would say we have differences of opinion on human rights and on different issues that are out there. Uh, so it's not just the United States and Israel. As we're building these alliances and friendships, we've got to continue to have frank conversation about what it means to have religious liberty, what it means to continue to advance human dignity and rights, uh, what it means to be able to advance ec economic freedom for everybody. Uh, so this is an issue that we'll continue to be able to work on in the days ahead. Senators Jackie Rosen and James Langford, thanks for being here, and thanks for, for being here in a bipartisan way. It's, it's always good to see. Good to Thank see you. Thank you. Our pleasure. Uh, coming up next, the House Democrat looking to push Senator Kirsten Sinema out of office after she left the party to become an independent. Stay with us. And we're back with our politics lead. Some Republican donors are now criticizing one of the top Republicans in the House, Congresswoman Elise Stefanik for her endorsement, enthusiastic endorsement, of now-embattled Congressman George Santos, one telling our own Pamela Brown, quote, I would never have donated without Elise Stefanik. I assumed she did her homework. Another remarked, quote, Santos was after me to become a big donor. He was such a fraud. Let's discuss with my distinguished panelists, one of whom I should note, Philip Bump has a brand new book, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom, and the future of power in America. I hope you take it to those baby boomers. Oh, it's, it's not that kind of book. I'm joking. I love the boomers. Uh, Jonah, um, let me start with you. Do you find it believable that Elise Stefanik was as hoodwinked as everybody else? Uh, no, look, look, when Elise Stefanik says something on, of this type, there's a 50% chance it's true, <laughs> right? I mean, let's be fair. So um, I, I think it's it's... It's very possible, you know, she kind of skyrocketed up to leadership and mostly because of her sycophancy with Trump. It's possible that she didn't know that she was supposed to do due diligence about this guy that she was endorsing. It's impossible. It's also possible she found out later in the process. But given the fact that George Santos has revealed himself to be who George Santos is, obviously lots of people screwed up. Right. And we're retroactively finding out who they are, and at least Stefanik is one of them. Well, one of the, if, to believe her statement at face value, you also have to believe that she then didn't really spend any time in New York State politically, uh, which is also happens to be her home turf, or uh, that she was just woefully politically misinformed. Neither one of them... Those statements looks good for her political ambitions. But there's also a different political challenge here she's having in that she made a lot of enemies on her rise up uh, in the Republican Party and to be chair of the Republican conference. So tying her to George Santos does some Republicans um, some good as well. And let's talk about that, because, Philip, uh, Stefanik has gone from a kind of uh, moderate ish, uh, right, right. you know, former Bush White House uh, staffer. Uh, Republican to one of the most vocally pro-magna trolling reporters on Twitter kind of congresswoman. This is how one New York Republican strategist describes it, quote, it speaks a little bit to kind of her shift over the past few years where it's really kind of become a bit of a zero-sum game. Win at all costs, winning is the only thing uh, that matters. And we should point out New York Republicans had a really great election cycle. 
No, you're exactly right. Yeah, I mean, so I think that it's certainly fair to point to Elisa Stefanik. There's been a lot of great reporting, including at the Washington Post, about the way in which she transitioned from this young, up-and-coming Republican who's seen as, you know, in the same way that Kevin McCarthy was once the young, up-and-coming face of the Republican Party, Elisa Stefanik was sort of seen as that, and then shifted under this Donald Trump, uh, uh, this style of politics. Uh, It benefited her politically to the point that we just Mm -hmm. made. She ended up becoming, you know, a senior leader in the Republican Party. Uh, But at the same time, this is someone who I think at the same time that she is transitioning herself, she's also trying to transition the party. It, it be, I, I have to see it through this lens of generation as well. I can't help but wonder if she saw George Santos as this young man of color who was gay, openly gay, who was you know, a potential new face for the Republican Party, which may have blinded her. This is someone, Elise Stefanik, who's done a lot of advocacy for bringing and broadening the scope of the Republican Party, trying to get more women elected in the party, for example. Is this something, too, where she seized upon George Santos as a new sort of Republican Without then doing the diligence that I uh, don't forget, he was also pretending he was Jewish at the same That's time. That's absolutely true. Right. It turned and out immigrant. he was just Jew-ish, <laughs> right? As he uh, as he later said. Um, and Hakeem Jeffries, uh, the Democratic leader, uh, is ignoring the threat from Speaker um, McCarthy to that he wants uh, Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell gone from the House Intelligence Committee, uh, and he's calling out Republicans on this. He says at the same time the Republicans have threatened to deny seats on the Intelligence Committee to clearly qualified Democratic member members. Serial fraudster George Santos has been placed on two standing committees of the House and welcomed into your conference. Now, the committees he's on are not significant, like House intelligence. um, But, boy, George Santos is going to be very useful for Democrats. That's right. They are not going to let uh, Republicans forget that they uh, voted for him and that they're standing by him. Kevin McCarthy has said uh, that he's not going to call on him to resign. The voters uh, decided to put Santos in there, so he's going to stand by him. Elise Stefanik and lots of other Republicans are essentially saying the voters uh, have decided and the Ethics Committee is going to take care of it. We know that the Ethics Committee has in some ways been gutted some of the rules around there, so it'll likely take a very long time to sort it out. And in the meantime, if you're George Santos, you're going to stick around. You're going to make, what, $185,000 this year, $185,000 next year. He probably won't run for re-election again. So this might be the best a shot he has at a steady income. It's, it's, been also, in, it's also not the first time he's run for office. He ran in 2000. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was the the guy who was lining up with Trump. So 2020. 2020. Right. Right. Rather, thank you. <laughs> I'm though, getting my dates mixed up here. But he, he's a known quantity yeah. uh, in the Republican space in New York State. There are many, many questions people had, even at the time, about who's, who's this being run against an incumbent. So uh, there says something about either the New York State Republican Party or the party overall, that they're really willing to rubber stamp somebody who just has checked some demographic boxes. And what's interesting, I don't know how much you follow George Santos on Twitter, but he's trying to <laughs> use the playbook of Donald Trump yeah, and yeah, Matt yeah. Gates and just like act as a, you know, just attacking the media, attacking us as if, you know, these are unreasonable questions when he's lied about literally everything, including his name. Yeah, I mean, look, that, this whole sort of like, if, if the media is attacking me, it proves I must be doing something right thing. It's been taken to the nth degree for a very long time. Um, I, I generally find George Santos increasingly less fascinating than a lot of people do. I do find the, the criminology of all of this, right? Because, you know, Kevin McCarthy hears footsteps from Elise Stefanik and putting her down a peg or two about her lack of due diligence, her lack of organizational still, skills... Um, you could see a very Machiavellian case that this is being driven by, you know, McCarthy's team in some way, hmm. or by a lot of other people, because with these margins, everybody is, you know, it's like the crab pot, you know, Everybody's each crab is trying to pull the one crab that's trying to get out, 
and who knows? But uh, I personally think that like he shouldn't be forced out unless he's committed a crime. Um, it's this, the Constitution doesn't provide for it, and it serves the GOP right to have him. And if he's committed a crime, they can expel him. But I don't, you know, other than that. So um, another big announcement today, uh, Congressman Ruben Gallego, uh, Democrat of Arizona, uh, pretty progressive, uh, is uh, going to run against uh, Kirsten Sinema, the now independent um, senator. And, you know, there's a lot of generational politics uh, in this, although uh, both of them are Gen X, uh, as is George Santos, as is Elise Stefanik. <laughs> so in your brand new book... As are the best Americans. <laughs> and the worst. Uh, fair, you have a brand fair. new book looking at how wealth, power, and politics will change as the baby uh, boom ends. You write, quote, suddenly members of the baby boom generation see something they've never seen before. These young Americans are more diverse, more likely to come from an immigrant family, better educated, less religious, uh, more liberal. And interestingly... Right. Generation X is actually more conservative, I've seen and I've read in your, in your columns, than almost every other generation, older or younger. Yeah, they are. It's, it's fascinating. There's, when you speak to people Isn't about... It, we are, aren't you a member? I am, I, absolutely. <laughs> I'm very proud. And it's odd to have a focus on Generation X. Usually we, we, we get we're that ignored. talking yeah, about boomers and millennials all the time. Uh, but yeah, I mean, to some extent, it is simply because we came up behind the baby boom, right? That, that we didn't have that same clout. We didn't have the same ability to affect culture and politics in the way that the baby boom did. Uh, the millennials, however, if you look at the millennials relative to the baby boom, at the age of 40, there are almost as many millennials as there were baby boomers. It's just that the population broadly is so much bigger that millennials don't have the same amount of clout. And so Gen X was absolutely sort of carried up behind the baby boom and echoed the baby boom in a lot of ways. We're actually, the generation used to be called the echo boomers. Uh, and as such, our politics do reflect the baby boom to some extent uh, and are therefore more conservative than younger Americans. And also the issues that were important tended to be, the political issues tended to be boomer issues. And so when we focus on what Gen X politics looks like, it tends to be the same sorts of things that older Americans were interested in, and not things like LGBTQ rights, climate change that are more important to young Well, people. and as the millennial on the panel, no. I will say that um, <laughs> for us, Gen- Generation <laughs> X, we're our older siblings, some of us, as I'm a geriatric millennial, um, we're also latchkey children, but we watched our older siblings and realized that maybe we needed to break from our parents just a little bit more. All right. Mm-hmm. Awesome. That wasn't nice to say that you're a millennial. That was, that was very, Never again. Don't have her don't back. Thanks to all for being here. The former president and convicted Philly mob boss, skinny Joey Merlino, photographed with Donald Trump. We've got some questions. That's next. A photo obtained by the Philadelphia Inquirer newspaper shows former president Donald Trump with the former Philly mob boss, skinny Joey Merlino, earlier this month, the two, along with an unidentified friend of Merlino's, are seen flashing the thumbs up sign at Trump International Golf Club at West Palm Beach. With me now is the Philadelphia Inquirer reporter who broke the story and obtained the photo, Chris Brennan. Chris, uh, you spoke with skinny Joey earlier today. Uh, what did he have to say and, and what does he sound like? I would say that he was very terse. My impression was that he was an unhappy mobster this Monday morning. Uh, he was not happy that the photo was out there. And what did he have to say about him and the former president, who you, you, you point out he's a big fan of? He described a long line of people. He said it was about 100 people at the golf club about two weeks ago, uh, Trump International Golf Course, West Palm Beach. And he said he was just one of many golfers who lined up to uh, get his picture taken with the former president. He did call him the greatest president we've ever had. Uh, And he said there were, uh, he said Donald Trump takes pictures with everybody. He's the nicest guy in the world. 
And I know they agree, and I, re- I know this from reading your story, I know they agree on that people who turn states' evidence flippers should be outlawed. He, he and Donald Trump agree on that issue. They have a shared aversion for that prosecutorial method. Is the Trump team saying anything about this photo? Very little. Uh, it took several days to get them to say anything. And when they finally did, they just said that Donald Trump takes pictures with a lot of people uh, and he can't be expected to know who uh, all those people are. But, you know, there's a history of a problem with this, with him having a lack of protective political infrastructure around him to prevent these kind of things from happening. They said back in uh, November that they were going to put in place protocols to make it a little more difficult to get close to him. It's not clear that those protocols, if they exist, are being enforced. No, I agree. It does seem rather loosey-goosey. Skinny Joey Merlino, for people who don't know, was convicted of racketeering in 2001. He skated on five murder and attempted murder charges, despite the testimony of Tommy Horsehead, Scafidi, and Pete the Crumb Caprio. Um, But he did, Merlino, he did do a decade in federal prison. um, And then he went back a few years ago, even. He has a reputation for being pretty vicious, right? So his latest charge was on a gambling-related charge. But yes, uh, I mean, the way you get to the top of the... La Cosa Nostra in Philadelphia is um, generally through violence, uh, and he does have that reputation. His most recent charge, he was indicted in 2016 when Trump was running for president. He pled guilty to a gambling charge in 2018 uh, and was released in the middle of 2020 while Trump was running for a second term. And this is the second time since Trump announced his re-election bid for president where he's he's been with somebody uh controversial, then denies knowing who they are. Um, back in November, and this wasn't just a photo line, he, he dined. He had dinner with white nationalist and Holocaust denier Nick Fuentes, uh, and also with uh, the anti-Semitic rapper formerly known as Kanye West, Ye. As you know, there, there doesn't really seem to be much quality control around Donald Trump. Those November, that November dinner, which is quite notorious now, uh, and was... Um, was uh, criticized by both Democrats and Republicans, including former Vice President Mike Pence. That was the reason that the Trump campaign, which had only started a week before that dinner, vowed to put in place those protocols to prevent this sort of thing from happening. Um, uh, That dinner was at Mar-a-Lago. This was at his nearby uh, golf course in West Palm Beach. But it doesn't seem like there was any any staffer um, in place to keep Joey Merlino out of the frame for this photo. Oh, skinny Joey showed up. Chris Brennan, thank you so much. And thanks to the, the great uh, people at the Philadelphia Inquirer. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at Jake Tapper. Tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to The Lead from whence you get your podcasts. Like, like a juicy strawberry just sitting right there, waiting for you all two hours. Our coverage continues now with One Mr. Wolf Blitzer in a place I like to call the Situation Room. That's after this short break. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.